This week, Westmoreland Coal secures $110 million in a bridge facility. Gibson Brands fights to receive final dip, and Rex Energy receives first day relief. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Teresa Lee. And I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Kyle Uwusu, Senior Distressed Debt Analyst, sat down with our European Distressed Debt Analysts Ben Kovaka and Rob Summers to discuss the highly followed credits, Steinhoff, Altis, and Astaldi. It's Sunday, May 27th. On Tuesday, Westmoreland, the U.S. and Canadian surface coal miner announced it had secured a $110 million bridge facility from ad hoc group of secured creditors. Proceeds will be used to repay the company's San Juan term loan as well as extend asset-backed revolving credit facilities. The company also said the bridge facility could convert into a debtor-in-possession loan and that the new liquidity would buy it time to negotiate with the ad hoc secured group to put together a restructuring plan. The ad hoc group that funded the bridge loan together holds approximately 79% of Westmoreland's term loan and 79% of the 2022 secured notes. And an 8K filed the next day, Westmoreland said that it may fail to make a $15 million interest payment due July 1st under its $350 million in secured notes and had entered into a forbearance agreement with certain note holders. The forbearance agreement was signed on May 21st and is due to expire September 30th. September 30th is also the deadline under the bridge facility to enter into an RSA. Gibson Brands began the week by defending on Monday its proposed $135 million debtor-in-possession loan against an objection filed by an unsecured creditor. The creditor had argued that any final dip should hold that the loans would not be secured by liens on unencumbered property or otherwise protect the unencumbered property. Gibson, which has been able to borrow $25 million of the proposed dip on an interim basis, said that the creditors, quote, unfounded allegations and arguments imperil the debtor's access to the remaining $110 million, which the company said it needs urgently. The Unsecured Creditors Committee and GSO Capital Partners, the sole prepetition ABL term lender and the sole international term loan lender, also objected to dip approval. At the final dip hearing on Wednesday, Gibson's counsel announced that the objections from the unsecured creditor and the UCC had been resolved, leaving only the GSO objection outstanding. Judge Christopher Sanchi said he could not give GSO everything it wanted, and that the dip loan buyers and sellers could not be insulated from the potential infirmity of the debt. The hearing may resume on May 31st, according to sources, but no notice has yet been filed. On Tuesday, Rex Energy appeared before Judge Jeffrey Deller for the debtor's first day hearing. The Pennsylvania-based oil and gas ENP company filed for Chapter 11 last week. The company entered into a restructuring support agreement with 100% of first lien lenders, who are also providing a $100 million dip and 72% of second lien lenders. The debtors are pursuing a plan process including a potential sale, pursuant to which either, if a sale is not consummated, the dip lenders and first lien lenders would receive 100% of the equity in the reorganized company. Or, if a sale is consummated, the obligations owing to the dip lenders and first lien lenders would be repaid in full 
from the net proceeds of such sale, and the holders of allowed claims under the second lien notes indenture would receive the excess proceeds from the sale. The plant term sheet lays out specific procedures in which first lien lenders and second lien lenders could credit bid. First lien lenders would be allowed to bid their make-whole amount of $50 million in addition to their principal claims. At the first day hearing, the debtors were granted their requested relief. Scott Greenberg of Jones Day said the debtors would file a motion to approve the make-whole settlement by June 1st. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Promesa Oversight Board on Monday announced that it will amend and recertify the Commonwealth's fiscal plan to reflect revisions reached in talks with the administration of Governor Ricardo Rosseo. The accord will reduce the projected annual surplus for fiscal 2019 by $101 million and requires the repeal of Law 80, Puerto Rico's Wrongful Dismissal Act, but safeguards other worker benefits and provides additional funding to municipalities, University of Puerto Rico students, and government technology and procurement reforms. On Wednesday, Assured Guarantee and FIGIC commenced an adversary proceeding against the Promesa Oversight Board, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, and the Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, seeking a declaratory judgment that the revised Commonwealth Fiscal Plan is, quote, unlawful and unconstitutional. The complaint asks the court to declare that the board cannot use the fiscal plan as the basis for proposing a plan of adjustment in the Commonwealth's Title III cases. The plaintiffs argue that to the extent necessary, the court should grant complementary injunctive relief. Finally, on Thursday afternoon, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued an order denying the COFINA agent's motion for certification of five questions under Puerto Rico law to the Puerto Rico Supreme Court. Judge Swain writes that although the issues raised by the Commonwealth COFINA dispute are, quote, novel and are of great importance to the people of Puerto Rico, the parties seeking certification characterize the scope of the issues, quote, too narrowly and ignore the federal bankruptcy context in which the dispute arises. Following the controversial re-election of Nicolás Maduro in Venezuela, the United States issued a new executive order to bar Americans from dealing on debt owed to the Venezuelan government. Similarly, regional peers in the Lima Group, including Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Colombia, and Mexico, issued a joint statement that outlines a number of measures to which the parties agree to limit Venezuela's access to global markets and isolate the Maduro regime. The moves could limit both cash flowing into Venezuela and Maduro's ability to remain current on outstanding debt. On Wednesday, the Inter-American Development Bank, or IDB, cut its lending activities to Venezuela after the country missed the 180-day limit on Monday for payment arrears of $88 million. The country's loan arrears outstanding with the multilateral organization, including payments that have not yet reached the 180-day limit, total over $210 million, on a total debt balance of approximately $2 billion. The IDB has now placed Venezuela in a, quote, non-accrual status. According to the bank guidelines on arrears, the organization, quote, cannot undertake any lending activities concerning Venezuela until its arrears are cleared. Other top red stories of the week were, one, Deutsche Bank sells $600 million in Cedral claims to a tester, Emory 68, Cowlin Lee, and Sandpoint after buying from Daewoo. Two, PetSmart appoints J.K. Smancic as CEO. Three, opioid litigation. Judge grants three-week extension for DEA to provide suspicious order reports. And 
And now we'll pass it over to Angelo Thalassinos for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thanks, Karen. Glad to be back in a guest host role as Jim takes some well-deserved time off. Don't fret, though. Jim will be back, as well as quips, which are much funnier than mine. As we enter rosé season, a CDS dispute is in the offing as the last day of May marks the date of a Havnanian event of default related to the 8% affiliate-held notes. That event of default is expected to trigger a request to the ISDA Determinations Committee to determine whether a credit event has occurred, once again pitting GSO and Solus against each other. To start off the last week of May, a formation meeting will be held for Rex Energy, Unsecured Creditors Committee, while Molly Corp Minerals seeks confirmation of its plan of liquidation. Initial bids are also due Tuesday in Claire's, while Toys has a bid deadline on Wednesday for Toys Delaware real estate assets. The middle of the week brings an iHeart status conference on the legacy noteholder litigation tied to the spring lien trigger date dispute, and J. Crew reports Q1 earnings and holds a call after market close. On Thursday, in the ever-growing litigation complex, which is the General Motors' post-bankruptcy litigation universe, Judge Jesse Furman will hold a status conference in the MDL litigation in district court. A recent proposed settlement between the Guck Trust and plaintiffs has sparked yet another round of disputes with new GM. And finally, to end the week on Friday, Community Health's exchange offers for its 2019, 2020, and 2022 notes expire midnight. Before I sign off, I cannot help but leave you with some words of wisdom, this time from the big Aristotle. Me shooting 40% at the foul line is just God's way to say nobody's perfect. Very sage advice from Shaq. Stay humble, everyone. Back to you, Teresa. Thanks, Angelo. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now we'll turn it over to Kyle Owusu, who's in London, to talk with our European team on a number of large international credits. Thanks. I'm here in the Reorg London office with two of my distressed debt analyst colleagues, Ben Kovaka and Rob Somers. But before I turn to Ben and Rob, I'm just going to give a brief rundown on the latest news on Steinhoff. On Friday, May 18th, Steinhoff and its advisors, Molis, Linklaters, and Alex Partners floated a restructuring framework offering to restate investors holding non-opco debt at par in exchange for a cash interest-free period to stabilize the business and restore liquidity. The maturity profile will be changed so that all loans mature three years after the restructuring date, and the plan assumes continued asset disposals and proposes to include milestones for, for all of those sales, including lender consents for asset disposals. Some notable portions of the presentation, just real quickly, um, you have the, the intercompany page, which disclosed a $900 million intercompany receivable going from Steinhoff Europe AG to Steinhoff Financials. The lenders, according to the presentation, requested a mechanism to protect the value of their lender guarantee claims, uh, both against Parent Co. and Steinhoff International Holdings Proprietary Limited. Um, as a reminder, uh, SIHPL um, benefits from an intercompany receivable going from Steinhoff Investments, and SIHPL is a guarantor of the Steinhoff Finance 2021 notes and 2022 notes. Another interesting part of the presentation is that it notes that in accordance with Austrian insolvency law, 
the position at the group's finance company, so Steinoff Europe AG and Steinoff Finance Holding, is constantly under review by local directors, and stabilization measures are being considered for which the immediate support of creditors is required. Uh, I think that's interesting because uh, according to a really good primer um, on global restructuring that's been put out by Baker McKenzie that's public, um, uh, in, in under Austrian law, um, if the debtor and or management of the debtor, and I'm qu- quoting Baker McKenzie here, if the debtor and or management of the debtor, where the debtor is a corporation, ignores the obligation to file when there is an insolvency, the the directors can be personally liable to creditors for all damages arising as a consequence of that delayed application to the insolvency court. Um, and the other thing to note about this is that there's some debate out there in the market as to whether or not this is the final offer. Is the company just floating this and and are our, our negotiations going to continue or uh, is this is this sort of standstill agreement? Um, the last we're going to see from the company. I think that remains to be seen, but needless to say, needless to say, stay tuned for more. Um, and now we will turn to uh, Ben, who's going to discuss Altice. Um, so Ben, Altice is a media company with around 33 billion euros of consolidated group debt across four st- silos. I'm looking at this capital structure right now, and it is truly massive. Can you walk us through the structure? Thanks, Cal. So what we have um, is essentially... Uh, several different capital structures uh, layered one on top of uh, another. So on the European side, uh, we have uh, Altis France and Altis International, which are two operating silos as of right now. And uh, in Altis France, the company has around 16 billion in debt. Uh, it's levered around 3.9 times on cross basis, 3.8 times on net basis. And uh, on the Altis International side, there's uh, further roughly 8.7 billion in, in debt. And the company is levered 4.9 times gross and 4.7 times net. Now, above this sits, uh, sits a Holdco, which uh, adds further 6 billion of uh, structurally subordinated debt. Uh, and uh, then there's a few other facilities. There's the Altis Corporate uh, f- uh, facility, which has around 2.3 billion in debt and is due to be reduced uh, through uh, proceeds. Uh, uh, generating the, uh, through a spin-off of the of the American vehicle, and then there's uh, there's some cash that sits with uh, uh, ANV and uh, Altis Pay TV, and uh, then there is a new silo uh, to be established, which uh, which is Altis Pay TV, uh, which basically cons- uh, holds all the all the media assets. Wow, my head is spinning just listening to all that. Um, so anyways, they announced the sale of, of their US business. Um, what do you think is the rationale behind all of that? And what and what do you what do you what do you anticipate that the proceeds are going to be used for? I mean, look, uh, the, the way Altis grew is uh, is through very aggressive uh, streak of acquisitions. And, uh, and the business uh, grew increasingly complex. And uh, um, towards the towards the end of uh, 2017, uh, the company came uh, under a bit of pressure. Uh, the note slipped into 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 low nineties, uh, and a lot of questions started being raised uh, regarding the, the the future of the company. and And the truth is, the the the, the American business and the European business uh, are slightly different in nature. Uh, the American business uh, was acquired with intention to uh, to focus on operational restructuring, improve the margins, which uh, which they've done um, uh, very well. 
and and they continue to do so and uh and they're also focused on 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 growth which uh which is slightly different to the uh, to where we find uh, ourselves in Europe. So what we have here is uh, Altis France, uh, or what used to be called Altis SFR. It uh, Altis uh, before Altis acquired it was called Numericable, and uh, and this entity it's uh, it's it's basically one of the one of the largest uh, um, telecom media groups uh, in France, uh, and. Uh, it's been suffering on the on the KPI side. It's uh, it had uh, fairly significant uh, churn levels. Uh, competitors uh, were, were very successful in uh, in acquiring the customers. And and basically, what happened is that the 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 problem the company was facing on the two two fronts were very different. So so uh, what happened is that the management decided to split the company into the to spin off the the US operations. Uh, and uh, and then the man management uh, led by Patrick Drahi. Uh, to come and focus on on the European side uh, of the company, so um, so so the proceeds uh, they were expecting around uh, nine hundred uh, million from the spin-off, and uh, what they're looking to do with this is to retire the very expensive corporate facility. Great, thanks for walking us through the information about the sale of the U.S. business. So. In addition to um, to asset sales, I mean, are there any refinancing plans? I mean, look, um, the company is uh, is not in a, in a position where it uh, it really needs to refinance anything as of right now, or it it is at least not under the pressure. And most of the maturities they're kind of uh, far out uh, from twenty twenty two onwards. Um, so so the company. It uh, finally in the first quarter of this year, it it's, it recorded. Uh, historically uh best performance ever in sfr and uh and overall in altis international and altis uh france it's been uh, it improved its uh, kpi significantly and there's a significant momentum going on uh the management uh, led by patrick drahi they're very focused and uh, and they're very confident that they can uh, keep improving the kpis going forward and and look if they manage to execute uh execute on this there's uh, there's no reason why they would uh, look to refinance right now when they can refinance uh, next year at much more uh, attractive rates cool so let's say they do um refinance next year or the following year or um you know what part of the structure do you think they're most likely to target well they will very likely target the the most expensive part of the capital structure, which uh, which uh, sits in Holtco. And then we also have the the Altis uh, corporate financing facility, um, which uh, which is being targeted with uh, with a disposal, uh, sorry, with a spin off proceeds uh, uh, from from the from the U.S. entity. And uh, the company is going through a significant uh, disposal program as well. It's uh, it's looking to dispose its uh, French and Portuguese tower assets. And sources close to the matter told Reorg. This is projected to go for, you know, for two billion or more. Uh, it is it is also uh, looking to dispose of its uh, Dominican Republic uh, assets, which sit in Altis International. And the figure being thrown around is uh, two billion to two point five billion, which uh, which kind of gets the the multiple of this business to uh, five to five to seven times. And uh, the company commented that they're not looking to um, to focus on any particular layer uh, of the capital structure, and they're looking for every uh, all the creditors to kind of benefit or share the benefits of this. But uh, reasonably speaking, there's uh, uh, 
I mean, the the priority should really uh, go towards uh, the more expensive debt, which is the debt that uh, sits at the halt call. Great. So it sounds like um, the the sort of near term priority is sell assets, improve the business. Once the business improves, you go to the market and try to lower your cost of capital at at the hold co structure uh, by by refinancing that debt, or maybe you sell, you sort of pay down some of that debt with asset sale proceeds, um, and then go to the market and try to refinance. Um, but in any event, thank you. That that's very interesting. Um, one last question, just around the strategy. I mean. You know, just thinking about myself personally, it seems like every other day I have offers from uh, my cable provider and other cable providers about triple play packages and whatnot. Um, can you talk about Altice's bundling strategy uh, and how the company plans to position itself in the market and then whether or not uh, it has any competitive advantages that you can identify? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, the the French market is highly competitive and there's uh there's not much room to uh, to kind of introduce something revolutionary. But what what the company is doing? It's uh, it's acquiring a lot of media assets such as uh, Champions League, uh, Europa League, um, which uh, all of this is uh, is uh, looking to sit in a in a new silo, which which is called Pay TV. And what they're looking to do is uh, is to is to basically bundle all of this together. Take uh, take some fiber broadband offer, bundle it with. Uh, uh, Bundle, uh, bundle it with uh, some of their uh, telecom offering and uh, along with uh, with this content that they've purchased recently and uh, and make it work together. Which which uh, look Champions League, Europa League, some some very good unique assets uh, which will uh, separate them away from the competition uh, from the competition in the market. And and the, the benefits of this are looking to start flowing through once the once the Champions League actually kicks off. Uh, you know uh, later later down in the year. Great, thank you very much. That was uh, that was very helpful. Um, moving on to Astaldi, uh, Rob, do you want to give us just a brief overview of what the company does? Thanks, Kyle. Yes, for sure. So Astaldi is an Italy-based construction company. It builds a variety of projects. These include railways, subways, roads, ports, airports, production plants, so on. It's a really diverse array of, uh, of projects. Uh, they also hold stakes in concessions. These include bridges, hospitals, and motorways. Um, now, the pub- company is publicly listed, but it's majority owned and controlled by the Astaldi family. Cool. So just looking at Astaldi's capital structure, it seems like there's an interesting dynamic here where you have uh, some unsecured revolvers. Um, Rob, I know you did a waterfall on Astaldi and, you know, I I hope the listeners out there forgive me, but I'm going to throw in a plug here. You can find uh, the Astaldi waterfall on the Reorg Research website if you click on Astaldi and go to the analysis section. Okay, anyways, uh, Rob, you did a waterfall on Astaldi. Um, how are you thinking about the treatment of the unsecured revolvers in relation to the senior notes and equity linked notes? Yeah, so for those unfamiliar with the credit, Estaldi has uh, 750 million euros of senior unsecured notes. These are not guaranteed. Um, The company also has two unsecured RCFs, convertible notes, and bank debt. The revolvers and the notes are both issued out of Estaldi SPA. We rank these peri passu. I mean, it's just all the same entity and not guaranteed. Um, at the end of March, the company had around $2.5 billion of total debt, about $2 billion of net debt. So a fairly large cap stack and fairly diversified between uh, you know, different, uh, different types of instruments. 
Great. So if I look at the just look at the capital structure now, I mean, they have 565 million euros of bank debt uh, maturing next year. There's 355 million of cash, 400 million liquidity total. And the company really hasn't generated free cash flow since 2014. So, you know, it seems like that they're going to have to deal with that debt somehow. And it's probably not going to be organically. Um, I heard they're doing a capital increase. Um, is that is that being done to address the 2019 debt? So I think to an extent, yes. And, and you know, the capital increase is, is very topical um, element of, of the credit at the moment. Um, it's something that the company announced um, last November uh, when it said it wanted to strengthen its financial structure um, in advance of, of um, refinancing uh, many tranches of its debt, including its RCFs, which mature in 2019. Uh, at the time, the company planned on um, issuing... 400 million um, and divide into um, 200 million of equity, 200 million of hybrid instruments. This was subsequently downsized to 300 million of pure equity. Um, the company also wants to plug the hole caused by the impairment of 230 million euro of assets in Venezuela. Um, so the new money will help the company um, plug that hole meet its uh, 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 refinancing obligations and also uh, meet its uh, net debt to equity covenant, uh, which is tested semi-annually uh, in December and June. Now, last week, we learned more about the uh, the details of the capital increase when the company announced that it had partnered with Japanese conglomerate IHI. IHI will invest $112.5 million into the company, and it will then hold about 18% of Estaldi's shares and about 13% of its voting rights. Uh, the Estaldi family will end up with about 35% of the common equity, but 50%, 50.2% to be precise, of the voting rights. Yeah, so if there's one thing I think I've learned at Reorg, it's that there are always a lot of uh, wrinkles with with these deals, and um, the devil is always in the details. And I'm guessing there are probably some issues around this capital raise. Um, can you flag some of those for us? So there are a couple key concerns. First, among other conditions, is that IHI's investment is contingent on Estaldi receiving at least 185 million euros for its 33% stake in the third Bosphorus Bridge in Turkey by December 31. Now, the book value of the asset is around 350 million euros, but there's a lot of variation in the market over how much that is actually worth. Um, you know, there's some issues with respect to the bridge uh, generating uh, sufficient ridership, sufficient revenues, and, and the need to rely on uh, the minimum guarantee from the Turkish government. Second, uh, 141 million of the 300 million rights issued will be covered by an underwriting group led by JP Morgan, and this deal also has a bunch of condition precedents. One of these is for there to be a binding offer for us to all these stake in the bridge, so kind of similar to the IHI deal. Um, now, on last week's earnings call, analysts tried to ascertain if there was a required bidding level for the asset, but management wouldn't provide a specific answer. So, do you, you know, kind of delves into some of the transparency issues that this company has been facing. Interesting. And then moving to your waterfall, um, what, what were your findings on that? So, Estaldi's notes are currently trading in the low 80s, and we project par recoveries that the company is able to sell its bridge stake and improve its working capital flows, with its receivables being a particular issue in need for improvement. However, if the sale doesn't happen, and more importantly, if the working capital issues persist, note holders are more likely to recover in the low 60s. Now, in our waterfall, we apply a constant whack of 12% across all cases and use a multiple range of 55 to 65 
Got it. So, you know, the, this is a company with a large cap structure, imminent maturities, um, operational issues around working capital. Um, I mean, what's, what's the plan here? So the company has said that it aims to refinance $350 million of credit facilities in 2018 and the $750 million of senior notes in 2019. So far, its banks have been supportive, agreeing to a new $120 million two-year revolver last November, and they also agreed to renegotiate the company's covenants last December. The capital raise and 700, $790 million of targeted concessional disposals over the next two years will certainly help Esteldi in reaching its target of a B credit rating that will enable it to return to the bond market and refinance at kind of acceptable rates for the company. Uh, but these are just short-term measures, and they really fail to address the company's persistent working capital and cash flow issues. That's what we found in the waterfall as well, that it's actually the receivables uh, that are driving longer-term recoveries for this business. So management has said that it's targeting $900 million to $1 billion of total debt in 2022, mostly through generating free cash flow. And this is helped, of course, by disposal proceeds and the capital raise. And it says it's working on addressing these working capital issues. But it's really too soon to tell if they're going to be able to pull this off. Great. Thanks a lot. And uh, I really appreciate you guys' time. Thanks so much for giving us a rundown on Altice and Estaldi. And I hope all the listeners out there enjoyed our overview of these credits. Um, If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out. We love to chat. Thank you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.